I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. talking music this week, I'm joined by a return guest, Shruti Kumar, who featured on the bonus episode on money in the music industry. If you haven't listened to it yet, it's a must listen for those trying to navigate this opaque world that is the music business. Growing up in Baltimore, composer, arranger, producer, engineer and general multi-hyphenate, Shruti started playing the piano at age four, studied at Juilliard at the age of 11, um, by the time I was in high school, composing became a lot more interesting to me because I felt that as a classical pianist, I couldn't, I didn't have a lot of freedom in how I was able to perform back then. Um, my teachers were very strict about playing things a very certain way. And to me, I always felt, why would I want to play something the same way it's been played for a hundred years? This is boring to me. So if I'm not allowed to be adventurous, then I might as well just write my own music. She completed her undergraduate studies at both Juilliard and Columbia University and has a master's degree in film scoring from NYU. Shruti now lives in LA and has worked in film scoring for the likes of famed film producer Hans Zimmer and his production company Remote Control Productions. She has also worked as a producer for various indie artists. For me, it's very important to preserve the creative vision of that singer, songwriter. Um, Otherwise, I would just go make my own music all the time, right? The reason why I'm collaborating, the reason why I'm a producer or a film sport, you're servicing another narrative, right? Mm. So I think that's a really important ego check for producers as well, because you have to ask yourself why you're producing artists instead of just making your own music. And as an arranger and orchestrator for artists, including Alicia Keys, Nas and No Doubt, and has arranged and musical directed for a hybrid orchestral piece featuring Fiona Apple and Shirley Manson from Garbage. Her work has been used on The Stephen Colbert Show and also for the United Nations, amongst others. You can read her full bio in the podcast blurb. 
we talk about access to musical education, about bridging the gap between classical music and other musical genres. We talk about the role of arts and society. That then go back to any point in time you walk into any museum, so much social commentary is through art, paintings, music, mm. protest culture has survived. Um, so I think if we treat it like a language and we think of it as some sort of preservation mm. of culture and mm. some sort of history, then that becomes a totally different conversation too, right? It's not just some candy for consumption. It's these things theoretically in a hundred years are gonna shed some light on what humans were feeling and going through, right? About creating safe spaces, safe spaces for artists, for women artists. We talk about starting musician-led spaces rather than seeking a seat at the table, about the importance and necessity of creating our own jobs. We talk about trusting your gut, trusting your ear and your own creative expression, because as Shruti puts it, art is meant to be a reflection of you, not a regurgitation of what's been done before. I mean, self-discipline for artists is something that I think is a very interesting conversation because there's no right or wrong to that either and how we motivate to just sit and write for ourselves. But I've been talking about this with a lot of my friends who are all incredible uh, professional musicians about, wow, when was the last time you wrote something just for yourself? Mm. You know what I mean? And I've fortunately gotten the opportunity to do some of that this year, but I can tell you it was definitely like a... Alice in Wonderland type experience being like you're left alone with your thoughts much like therapy right where you're like oh wow this is a blank canvas when was the last time any of us had the privilege of a blank canvas we talk about the future of the musical landscape in these pandemic and post-pandemic times and our mutual love of Quincy Jones you just look at this man and all the different things he learned keeps learning always encourages self-education learning on the job um but look at the number of roles he did with just the title of producer, right? And now we have people who just open an Ableton session and call themselves a producer. <laughs> this episode was recorded just before Christmas, so you're not going to hear any references to some of the political changes that have taken place in the States, like the insurrection on Capitol Hill or the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. OK, let's get on with the show. Shruti Kumar, thank you so much for taking the time today. We're four days away from Christmas. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have community around during the holidays, even via Zoom. Exactly. I was saying to, I was thinking about it. I was thinking, you know, I have Alev Lens to thank kind of for all of this, because when I started the podcast, she was the first person I asked and she said yes. And it's kind of snowballed and I know you because of her because we did this bonus episode and that's how I know you because she recommended you. She's like, you know, you've got to speak to Shruti. She's got to come join. So it's really nice. I feel like I'm calling it, you know, there was that film, The Sisterhood of the Travelling Pants. <laughs> I feel like this is like the sisterhood of the independent musicians or something. Oh, that was amazing. Um, it, I met her in London. I was there for most of last year. Um, and she became a big staple in my music community and friend circle while I was abroad. And she has since stayed very much present in my life. So I have a lot to thank her for as well. Beautiful person. Yeah, that's true. She really is generous in the truest sense, you know? Yeah. But um, let's talk about you. Um, you are, you're like what multi-hyphenate producer, composer, arranger, musical director, you started playing the piano at four. You were studied at Juilliard. 
you studied at NYU film composing at NYU you were at Columbia so um I want you to take me all the way back to four-year-old Shruti (laughs) it's funny because during this time um somehow especially given the heightened amount of engagement in the music community I've had a lot of opportunity to go all the way back to four-year-old Shruti and think about what, what's been happening yeah. <laughs> with my life. It's really interesting for all musicians, I think, to trace their music brains back to however far they can go mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, because it sheds a lot of light on whatever we're doing now. But I guess when I was four, um, I've been trying to remember why it is that I started the piano, because my parents are from India. Mm-hmm. Um, they are immigrants, and I'm first generation here which I think is second generation in the UK, but <laughs> same, same, yeah, same yeah. thing. Yes. Um, and so it wasn't like I had any pressure from my family to play piano or anything, but my parents loved music and they took me to a lot of concerts. And I believe it might've been a Harry Belafonte concert or something nice. like that. Ravinia in Chicago. Yeah. My parents were big fans, are big fans. Um, and I think my eye or ear or something Mm-hmm. got drawn to whoever was playing a keyboard or piano at that time mm-hmm. and I got very excited about it and we were lucky to be in a city Baltimore that had a music school nearby with a great uh, prep program for children a lot of infrastructure to have the access be available to lots of children Baltimore City itself had invested a lot in its arts and culture and arts education mm-hmm. so um, it was equal parts interest and active parents and also being in a city that provided these kinds of experiences. So I started going to piano lessons when I was four and uh, it quickly snowballed. Um, I think I loved it so much at the time. It was a great outlet for me because I liked school too, but was kind of a social misfit for a long time, (laughs) either by my own doing or something else. But I loved practicing the piano. And uh, I think kids, if they sponge up like that, it it can take off pretty quickly Mm. if you're within that kind of school structure. So by the time I was eight or something, I was playing pretty professionally as a kid. Um, I was passed up through teachers, studying then with teachers who were teaching in the college. Um, And, you know, before I really knew it by I was like eight or nine, I was performing and competing quite a bit. It became a big part of my life. I think around the time I was around 10 or 11, though, I started feeling like my musical aesthetic creative brain wasn't really fitting into the boxes that conservatory and Western classical music was providing for me. I have this realization in hindsight, but not so much then. But you know, my parents are Indian. We listen to a lot of Indian music in the house. We listen to a lot of rock, pop. I mean, the the amount of sounds coming into my ears were not equal to the amount coming out of my fingers when I was practicing. So I became interested in composing, even if when I was a kid, it was just fiddling around and improvising instead of practicing. But um, by the time I was in high school, composing became a lot more interesting to me because I felt that as a classical pianist, I couldn't, I didn't have a lot of freedom in how I was able to perform back then. Um, my teachers were very strict about playing things a very certain way. And to me, I always felt why would I want to play something the same way it's been played for a hundred years? This is boring to me. So if I'm not allowed to be adventurous, then I might as well just write my own music to play. (laughs) So that was really the uh, big change. And and in high school, I was studying at Juilliard uh, by then. And I was very fortunate to have had a lot of training by then and have access to children's choirs and symphonies and stuff. So Um, a beauty of being again in a school that young um, when going that route was I had access to ensembles and other people 
who could play and test my music. And I think that's a very important part of entering composing is the relationship you gain with your players. So because of the friendships I was making with those players, I started getting a lot more adventurous in my writing uh, because my friends would often be like, hey, I want to try this and it's not in my music either. So that kind of snowballed and I realized even through that, um, genres were really bothering me. I spent a little bit of time while I was at Columbia writing theater music. Um, I started some songwriting then as well, singing even for a bit, just testing out all the little areas of music which excited me. I think always and still today, um, when I work on something, I want it to also be sort of an educational experience. So anything that will get me a little bit out of my comfort zone when I write. Um, and that's what I think finally led me to this idea of film scoring being a great playground, um, theoretically, mm -hmm. to be able to write all kinds of music depending on the film and the director and give myself an opportunity to not box myself in mm. to a particular sound. Simultaneously, though, I was doing a lot of uh, writing and performing with downtown uh, new music groups in New York, uh, like Bang on a Can and things like that, that were really expanding my sound palette. So mm -hmm. testing our ideas of what an instrument is, how can we record different kinds of uh, tools mm -hmm. to make them into instruments, et cetera. So all that was happening, and while I was sort of keeping my genre bounds open, I was also kind of honing into the types of experimentation with sound that I really enjoyed. So I moved to LA um, to pursue film scoring for a career, just to make a living, but also was still kind of playing around. Now I know that's teaching myself engineering, essentially playing around uh, with sounds. Um, Somehow in that time, uh, there was a, I was working at Remote Control Productions, which is Hans Zimmer's studio um, in LA. And it was a great sort of educational experience as well. And there were a lot of other producers and composers there. And one of the producers started asking me to do strings and orchestra arrangements for the pop records that they were working on. And at the time that just seemed like an obvious fun thing to do because that was my comfort zone, writing for orchestra. Um, but that sort of, segued into a career of arranging, um, which was parallel to film scoring. And then it soon became a little more prominent. And that sort of gave way to me producing records because then it just became apparent that the way that I was approaching arranging and scoring and finally producing um, very much the same mindset and the same set of skills and the same intention. Mm -hmm. So soon I started producing a lot of my friends' records who are singers and then we, we made a community in LA of sort of an artist community where we were all working together. Mm. Then it became sort of apparent that there was a big question of what a producer artist relationship was. Wow. And a lot of my artist friends were complaining to me about their experiences with producers, especially independent artists, mm -hmm. how they sort of felt that their creative processes were hijacked um, by the producer. And it became important to me to create safe spaces for artists, especially female artists mm -hmm. um, as well. So that sort of took over a chunk of my time away from film scoring. And then all years went by, many experiences happened in all of them and everything went sort of full circle when I started organizing and directing and conducting these hybrid concerts uh, that were orchestra and rock pop um, with amazing artists and singers. Um, and that became sort of the big scale endeavor trying to shine a light on female artists and also also simultaneously prove that lots of these genres and sounds can coexist in a way mm -hmm. 
Um, and now in LA and certainly in the UK, that's very common, but mm. at the time it wasn't as common here with a lot mm. of red tape from institutions. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I've gone back full circle. Uh, I do a little bit of everything, film scoring, uh, producing, and before COVID, I was doing a lot of live uh, events as well, big scale concerts. So now post that, um, I found myself back in classical space by accident because I think that the definitions are very much blurred in that space now, which is a great thing. Mm. Um, I still am scoring films, a little bit choosier about which I take now, producing records also a little bit choosier, but also teaching. And I'm, I'm gonna be an adjunct teacher at NYU next semester as well in Clive Davis Institute. Yeah, so I think if there's anything I've, I've learned from that roundabout story is that all the doors are viable. Um, if you keep an open mind about music you're creating, all doors sort of lead to each other and back to each other. Mm. Um, and as I reflect on my life, the way you've just made me do it, and I've had to do a lot over the past <laughs> six months, I do think that I've uncovered some problems or questions um, about the music education space as well. And right. I'm sort of extra motivated to readdress those things and hopefully help younger musicians and artists be a little bit more confident in their voice from a younger age, you know. Brilliant, so, so this is really, really interesting. Um, you know, as you're talking, I sort of take notes, things that stick out to me. But I, I want to ask you, I mean, you have a very broad musical, I guess, education and experience in all the different spheres that you're working. And I've always found that the musicians that um, are the most interesting to work with are always people that understand lots of different things. They're not just in one space. But I want to I want to talk about. Well, actually, let's start with this. When you're talking about music education spaces, you came from Baltimore where you had access to schools where you would have learned with, I imagine, kids from lots of different places with really interesting teachers. There's a great documentary about, is it, I think it's this, is it the Simon Bolivar Orchestra in um, Colombia or is it Venezuela? El Sistema. There's a great documentary it's called El, El Sistema and it's all about this, um, uh, orchestra that was set up by this man who really wanted to get young kids who were in really poor neighborhoods playing classical music. I think that Dudamel here has blasted that documentary a lot. Um, I think I know what you're talking about. I also yes. think there is a TV character based on this person <laughs> in the show Mozart in the Jungle. I think the, yes, the conductor yes, yes, is exactly. based off of Exactly, guy. exactly, exactly. And it's set in, um, it's Venezuela. But what really struck me, that this idea of making music available to children that wouldn't normally have access to music because instruments cost a lot of money, teachers cost a lot of money. Um, and so now that you're in this school, I want like what's kind of the demographic in Baltimore, the kind of kids that are going to the music school you went to? It's still interesting. Um... I, I have been reflecting a lot on this too. So I, it's worth noting that I, within that structure of Baltimore, I certainly was not, I was privileged. Like my parents were immigrants, but I think in terms, in the broader spectrum, they were professors. Um, they were very um, academic and they're big thinkers. So for me, and that in and of itself was a privilege, right? Having parents who very much wanted me 
to, if I picked something to do, commit to it 100%, you know, as they would always say, like, don't have to do it. If you're going to do something, do it all the way. Um, hard workers, very open-minded people. So for me, yes, though it was, it's very rare to have an Indian American kid, or I was at the time, go this seriously into Western classical music. Mm -hmm. It happened, and I think that very much is to do with my parents and their support um, back then, and the schools. Now, the schools... Baltimore itself is a very interesting city. Uh, it's, there's a lot of, I mean, you can look into the history of the city of Baltimore and I won't belabor that too much, but it, the demographics are, you know, pretty good microcosm of America, I think, <laughs> in terms of all the issues we deal with, et cetera. But I would still say in a classical music space when I was a kid, which was in uh, the 90s, <laughs> um, it was still pretty, you know, you wouldn't see a lot of black students. I think I became friends with the few that were there. Um, there certainly weren't any other Indians. Yeah. Um, um, I would say that there was a bigger chunk of Asian American students and also obviously a lot of international students from Eastern Europe. Right. And of course, um, white Americans. Mm -hmm. So, but I also think I think the schools can always do better about making sure that economically these things are accessible. I do think that it's a double-pronged issue of also the definitions of what classical music really is. Because yeah, um, yeah. I do think that the idea itself of classical music is culturally inaccessible, not because people don't understand it, but maybe because people just aren't interested in it. <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, that's for those people, or eh, it's old, it's dead, I would rather be doing something more interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, because I was growing up in Baltimore and learning piano and learning these tools, which became very quickly apparent that those tools could be applied across genres, yeah. um, I was lucky again that I didn't have these kind of preconceptions in my head because of my family, I think. Mm -hmm. But I can totally see why a kid in Baltimore who's super talented and capable would just be like, that's boring, I don't wanna do that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a whole, the whole other part of music education is somehow making sure everyone's learning these fundamentals, right? I still believe in learning the tools so we can break the rules, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it's also about making it interesting to um, kids. And that for me, I remember thinking like, why, the music I write sounds so different from what I'm practicing and nobody no teachers were really available to talk about eastern music or other musical influences um, my teachers were very traditional so I think while we have to make sure that these schools become financially accessible and I know that Juilliard and Curtis other schools are going towards a no tuition model even though it's very hard to get in but they're trying I mean we have a long way to go in so many areas. The other part of it is having teachers be more open-minded about their definitions of what's good and bad, right? Because mm. especially in the conservatory world, I was very conditioned to think certain things were bad so much that it, it became self-directed. I, mm. I was thinking, oh, what I'm doing is weird. I'm a weird composer. I'm the one that's weird, right? Um, which was sort of damaging for a while as I got older because I started thinking like, okay, I'm going to have to carve out a different career for myself because there's no way that I'm going to succeed in classical music. And in a way that was a blessing because I've gotten to experience so many other forms of the music world without considering myself a sellout, right? A lot of classical people think they're selling out if they're going to theater or film or pop. But for me, it was like out of necessity, I need to make a living. I need to go where I fit in. 
-hmm. Now, as it turns out, and as we get older, we realize like most creatives don't really fit in anywhere. You have to just carve out your own space. But, But it is interesting. And yes, back to your education question, I do think that looking back, if I had more teachers who are willing to have conversations about, you know, instead of taking an eraser to your music, when you bring in a score, and just say, why don't you do this instead? Talk about maybe like, why did you want to write that? What about that sounds good to you before we change it? Now, I might suggest doing X, Y, and Z because it might be a better way of achieving what you want, but mm. I, I'm not going to tell a student to erase their music. I mean, it's mm-hmm. coming from somewhere, right? So, and, these, and then we can go all the way back to where did these aesthetics, like who decided way back when what was good and what was bad. And now that we're so, I'm so glad that there are more immigrants everywhere and mm. music is, you know, there's music is so richly a part of so many cultures. Yeah. Um, it would be a real shame if the classical space didn't evolve that way as well, allowing for different um, cultural backgrounds to coexist within this traditional educational space, you know, if that uh, makes sense. Yes, it does. And, I, and it's interesting because I think when I think about classical music, because I was trained in classical music, but I, I started songwriting because of classical music because I had a teacher who I always say the most important thing she taught me to do was how to listen. Yes. And she would often, yeah. And she would often say to me, like, I mean, so obviously all of this is in hindsight at the time I was like, I don't know what she's talking about, but she would say to me when I was playing, she'd say, you need to listen as you play. And I'm thinking I'm playing so I can clearly hear what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, but actually listening is not the same as hearing. And she used to make me write the chords underneath across a piece of music understanding the harmony which got me obsessed with harmony and how chord progressions work so I started writing songs because I was playing Schubert actually and so I and I think I think sometimes the problem with classical music it's also stuff especially in Britain for example it's so class related so there's a stuffiness about classical music that puts people off but when you actually have the opportunity to listen and you're actually taught music in a broader sense, you realise there's just beautiful stuff everywhere. It doesn't matter the genre. And I think, you know, classical music has this sort of stuffiness and it's very complex. And when you hear musicians playing, you think, oh, they're amazing. But as you start to understand, like you say, different genres, you understand the complexity of like sitar players. It's insane what they have to learn. Or I have this really interesting CD of these Bulgarian singers and they're all the vocals, the harmonies and the things that they can do with their vocal cords. It sounds like they're singing chords and really strange, what we would consider like strange intervals. That's also a really complex way to learn. They might not learn the same way we have, but there's a lot of complexity in so many different genres. And I think the more we sort of um like when I'm teaching what I really try and do if I'm teaching like music to people rather than like the piano um I really try and expose people to all kinds of things like the the backer people in um in Cameroon and the music that they have like they have songs for sending kids to sleep they have songs for when they're going to hunt in the forest they have water they play like um percussion on the water and there's like drum music like they've got music for everything and that for me is is as sophisticated in a different way as stuff that Beethoven is writing oh absolutely I think that the you to put it coarsely the utility of music in other cultures mm. is actually something to learn from I mean mm. it gives a different space for music and art in the culture it's respected more I think mm. um it 
I think there's a lot to learn from all cultures that have music as a tool yeah. for living as well. I mean, even if it's just religious, right? But like, I think that, um, I think it's pretty amazing. And um, something you talked about that I, that I really agree with is this idea of listening. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot too, especially while I teach and I'm teaching more music production now and that will go into mixing and more tech stuff. But I approached engineering from a very outsider perspective. I never went to formal audio engineering school. So anything I do on my computer or in producing is by ear. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, it comes from sort of the privilege of my experience that I do trust my ear. But even then it took so long for me to get to a place where I'm like, I know this isn't conventionally the right way to mix this or use this tool, mm. but I like it and I trust my ear. But that goes back to giving students this sort of confidence that while they're learning the building blocks to also really discern what their ear wants uh, because taste is so um, subjective, right? I mean, there's no such thing as the right way to think of something. So I always think if a student understands what they're doing, mm. but can still sell their idea so to speak mm. not in not in the commercial sense but if they can own their idea even if they're sort of breaking a rule then that is worth more of its weight than just doing what someone else told you right so it's just somehow and it's so hard and probably way easier said than done to preserve a student's sense of self and mm. listening while they're learning um mm. and not to make them feel like something is wrong but more to make them think about why they're making their choices right um, but absolutely, I think exposing kids to all sorts of different types of music, aesthetics, um, ways of thinking about music, these things are all important, especially to build a generation of artists that have more autonomy, both creatively and financially over their careers, right? So um, I think all of that is so important, listening, yeah. especially trusting your ear. And it's so interesting because, like, well, two things spring to mind about just also having the space and the time which requires money to just explore and I think music is if you're an artist or a musician or a creator that really cares about what you do the stuff that you make evolves as you evolve as a person so having the time to just like I, I still I mean it's still like a desire of mine and I still haven't done it to just take you know a good six months to a year to just do nothing but listen and create and not think about bills not think about any of that stuff but just listen and create and explore and research without any sort of timeline pressure but it's difficult to do in the world that we're in and I think I, I think we still haven't heard music we haven't heard what's available to us yet I think there are artists that are going to you know we, we hip-hop became like this genre but there was a period when it when it wasn't around, but someone was listening to gospel and someone was listening to jazz and was like, I'm going to take some vinyl and I'm going to do this with it. And I'm really excited for the music that we haven't heard yet. But it Me requires, too. yeah, and, and it requires like teachers like you and people to have space to and courage to just explore stuff. I think you're absolutely right. This is a tough topic for me. Also, because I'm going through a period of self-reflection, as we all are right now, um, again, I have to keep saying, I, I think it is incredible privilege that I'm able to have a career in music. Um, mm -hmm. But it was never easy. I, I mean, I don't know any of my peers that are my friends that haven't had to have multiple jobs uh, mm -hmm. throughout the whole thing. 
always consider, I mean, it was never so straightforward as I'm going to be an artist one day. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. We always had to be sort of um, adventurous also with our career choices, you know, and not, you know, very hard to tune out what other people say. Sometimes very hard to even admit that you're balancing multiple jobs, you know what I mean? Um, and you have to tune all of that out. But yes, it does require a certain amount of time and space and openness to explore. However, in this year, when I've been rejigging my career and workflow, et cetera, and finishing projects and trying to finish my own album, it is funny the way that we have been conditioned. I don't know if it's our own conditioning or the way that the world is right now. Um, even if given an opportunity of even a week where I didn't have to do anything but write and listen, it was, to be honest, quite difficult for me to structure my own brain for that openness because I'm so used to putting my writing and jobs in categories, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I mean, self-discipline for artists is something that I think is a very interesting conversation because there's no right or wrong to that either and how we motivate to just sit and write for ourselves. But I've been talking about this with a lot of my friends who are all incredible uh, professional musicians about, wow, when was the last time you wrote something just for yourself? Mm. You know what I mean? And I've fortunately gotten the opportunity to do some of that this year, but I can tell you it was definitely like a, Alice in Wonderland type experience being like you're left alone with your thoughts much like therapy right where you're like oh wow this is a blank canvas when was the last time any of us had the privilege of a blank canvas mm. and is my brain even ready for it mm. you know I mean that's the thing about making a living in music is that it's a lot of um, when it comes to making a living it's a lot of decisions that you make just to keep staying afloat mm. um, and they're often not fully reflective choices you know that's only from the money making making a living part um so i think it's interesting i i'm so excited like you said to hear the music that's yet to be written um what i'm hoping is going to come out of this crazy time and i'm already sort of seeing it is that in our sort of isolation and lack of outside influence from always being around competitive spaces etc that people are just getting more courageous in releasing their art no matter what they're getting less bogged down with is this perfect is this perfect are people gonna like it more like I better put my music out now there's no time like the president I've lost my ability my patience for this process so if I like this let's just put it out in the world and I think that in the next year we're gonna see a lot more adventurous art like that um, just from showing how us being divorced from other institutions like in our day-to-day -day consciousness when we're writing and self-critiquing um once that's out the window i feel like people are we're gonna see a lot more true reflections of people's current listening now that may also continue to evolve but i think people will be in clear headspace to really at least represent their minds at the moment <laughs> mm. <laughs> but i totally agree with you I, I think that is the most exciting part of now um I hope, I mean, the other part of this conversation is the arts and culture sectors need a lot more attention and relief and respect. Um, mm -hmm. You guys at least have an arts and culture minister and there are some mm -hmm. important conversations happening now in the UK, which is the result of a lot of work of some very dil diligent advocates. Mm -hmm. But um, in the US, we still don't have an arts and culture secretary and stuff like that. So, you know, on the flip side, people are gonna start refinancing their lives differently. But on the other flip side, they might just be like, well, now that this is happening, I'm just going to make the music I want to make mm -hmm. without worrying about 
what I'm supposed to be making. Yeah. Uh, so we, we may see bad and good come out of this, but I hope creatively the good mm. well, is, takes you, us somewhere new. Yeah, and I, it's so interesting because I had two conversations with two different guests that have stuck with me a lot. One was BT Wolf, and I know she's- I love BT. Mm. And one of my was, favorites yeah she's amazing and and for me also just so inspiring because she just does whatever the heck she likes which mm-hmm. i just love um but the other one was makuta fujimura and he was just talking about he's a, a painter but he was just talking about how talking about culture and that we talk talk about culture wars but the art is in this middle place where we actually can have sort of safe conversations where we're not fighting against each other we're creating in this communal kind of way but he you know the thing is art isn't the arts isn't quote-unquote necessary the way medics are I've pondered this for years because you know I trained as a lawyer my parents academics blah 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 um the value of of this thing that we do this music that we make um you know no one needs it to breathe and stay alive but to live in a world where there isn't beauty will just kill us all, right? So it's an interesting question. I also um, I studied math and economics as well. <laughs> nice, nice. And my parents are also academics. There's a you know there's a lot to ponder here over the years. But um, it is the question, right? What is the value of art? And I find it very sad actually that so many people that have done so much greatness mm. for so many like so many beautiful things, um, are really questioning their self-worth right now. I studied economics, so very bluntly, you just look at the money that the music industry is churning back into the economy. That in and of itself should be some proof that it is a valuable industry. Um, That is the coarse way of looking at it, that is the way that you have to speak to governments and (laughs) city council officials, whatever, just like look at the money that we are providing to your regional economy we are valuable workers. We're not, this is, you know, but um, yes, no one needs music to breathe, but I would say, look at any moment in history of any culture, any tribe, any region of the world where there wasn't art. Mm. Um, I mean, it's pre-existed all of these false uh, categorizations of what is important, you know? But I think since the beginning of time, there's been art, uh, depending on how we define art, so if it's as ancient as hunting and gathering and, mm. you know, I mean, what, what is art? Uh, our writing is art, right? Somebody decided to make characters, hieroglyphics, mm. whatever it is. I mean, that's sort of art too. Art is communication. Art mm. is a language the same way mathematics is, you know? Um, so we can get real <laughs> broad about this, but um, it's not an easy question to address. And I do think, I find it incredibly sad that so many of us are struggling with our value now Mm. Uh, because, you know, when you're questioning your own value, that's going to really impede your output as well. Absolutely. So, um, yes, we we don't need music and art to breathe, but I can't find an example of a space or point in time where we've been devoid of art. Absolutely. So we don't even know what the world would be like in the absence of it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we could put ourselves in some sort of vacuum and do some kind of study to see what happened to all of us Mm -hmm. without any kind of beauty or art Mm -hmm. or culture, um, then we would know the answer, (laughs) but we don't know. And you can't take it away now in the digital age once music and art and television and film and books, everything's out in the world, you can't take it away. 
So yeah. we're in this very interesting spot where we can't use our labor power to strike the same way that other industries can. Uh, we can't just take away what we provide to show the world what it would be. Yeah. Without, and same with us, right? We can't show ourselves what the world is gaining from our contributions. So I guess on some fundamental level, yes, it's like an individual idea of what's essential and what's not. Um, of course, again, I'm never going to say that art is as important as a medic or, you know, mm. as engineer or whatever, but we just don't know. I'm not going to say it has no value because it clearly does, yeah. you know, yeah. and again, in the core sense, people are consuming art at a much higher rate than ever before this year. And so there is value. We just don't know, you know, for ourselves what it is. And I, and I think you're right. And I think, well, what this time has done for me has shown me how vital it is in the world that we're in. And I actually think, I, I almost think the world is like in some kind of existential crisis and we're having to reevaluate what we think is valuable. I mean, you're, my dad's an economist and it's so strange because recently I've been really getting into it and I was never interested in it as a child at all. I didn't even know what it really kind of meant. So it's just like my dad's an economist and there's just books everywhere. That's all I knew kind of thing. But um, even the way we compute and measure um, what is valuable. So for example, um, I was thinking a footballer, like there are some footballers who earn more in a week than what a person will earn in five years. Like say a nurse, an essential worker will earn less in five years than what a footballer makes in a week. That's not the footballer's fault. That's just how the the system has worked, you know, all this sort of private money. But clearly we know that a nurse is more important in terms of keeping a society going than a footballer. But we place weight and we attribute money to things that actually don't make a lot of sense. And I'm not saying a footballer shouldn't be paid well because actually there's a lot of skill in all of that. But we know it's not essential for society to function. I mean, these are, this is a very... Uh, complex conversation but you're right it does have to go into private versus public um, because then anything that's private uh, because of supply and demand and who can afford those goods etc um, that will shake up very differently um, than how we see money come into public goods right so I'm saying I am by no means saying private is better in fact I think that this whole question and coexisting of different <laughs> values in different societies um, you know, et cetera. It's just too complicated right now. I will say that in order to get the ball rolling with these questions, I do think we need these course numbers to show like, all right, within the space that we exist right now, until things are more equitable and until we have more government um, involvement in certain of these industries, I think um, you got to show that the numbers that are coming into the music industry and then how much musicians are getting. Yeah. Um, and in terms of being essential, I thought about something else too, um, just in the broader conversation of art, 
um, because the economics of this is actually pretty gnarly and it could be its own podcast. But, <laughs> um, but um, do you think that journalism and historians are essential, right? Um, are records of history now, that will become very problematic because who's, um, who are the orators of our mm. history, right? And that goes back to education as well. But if you want to move forward and, you know, I was thinking this even when I was in London, I'm, I was thinking are photojournalists essential workers because somebody needs to be documenting this right now. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is incredible history we're living through. Is that an essential worker? That then go back to any point in time, you walk into any museum, so much social commentary is through art, paintings, mm. music, protest culture has survived. We can have conversations through music. I mean, my radio show is about bringing together uh, musicians from very different on paper backgrounds and experiences to have a musical conversation with each other. Let's shake on it. That's your show. Let's shake on it. Yeah. Um, So I think if we treat it like a language and we think of it as some sort of preservation of culture and some sort of history, then that becomes a totally different conversation too, right? It's not just some candy for consumption. It's these things theoretically in a hundred years are going to shed some light on what humans were feeling and going through. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is essential to me, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. For society, but that depends on how much you value history and how much we want to change the needle regarding whose history and whose version of history is being passed through. And somehow I feel that if institutions, you know, given all the work that's left to do to give everyone equal platform, I do somehow sort of feel though that art is the most, and this may be a very um, <laughs> controversial thing to say, but I think art will forever be, if all art is preserved equally, mm-hmm. the most true source of history, uh, because it doesn't have to be so black and white and it doesn't have to be follow rules theoretically, right? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So I, I do think like the most interesting art, you know, talking about people like Harry Belafonte, talking about people like even Picasso, look at their their representations of society, you know, um, these things, that is valuable. Artists are not just icing on a cake. Um, I believe that they are like the flour and the butter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I totally, totally agree. And I like more and more, like I said, I think we are, it is essential to have art in society. I listen to, I've, I've been ranting, raving about this podcast. Everyone must listen to it. It's, oh, Patrick Radden, I think it is, Wind of Change podcast. Have you heard about it? No. It's basically this journalistic podcast series about how the, um, they reckon that the CIA wrote the Scorpion song, The Wind of Change. <laughs> it is amazing and mad. Oh, but great what it will do, no, you must listen to it. I recommend it, like, everyone needs to listen to this. Everyone needs to listen to this. But what you understand is the CIA, the CIA understood and understand the power of music. So they used music as this sort of soft power to sort of promote US interests abroad. So they had like, you know, Louis Armstrong doing stuff in Africa because they were like, you know, the Russians, Afri- you know, all these African countries had gotten their independence. They were like, we do not want the Russians in here. So what we're going to do, we're going to send some African-American artists who are all, you know, civil rights and we're going to send them in. Nina Simone was singing in Lagos thinking she was doing this incredible thing, connecting with her African roots. And actually the CIA has set it up. It's the wow. craziest thing. But what it will do, I, I'm just like, no, art really matters because as you say 
it is a reflection on where society's at, how people are feeling, the good, the bad, the ugly, the diverse representation. I mean, how- it's, a, it's a language too, and, and to the <laughs> degree of what your podcast is dealing with um, in kind of even its most dangerous ways, it is a form of disseminating information in a palatable way people may not be understanding what they're receiving i mean that's a terrifying way to look at it but look with all power and responsibility comes good and bad and like i'm sure there are evil ways to use music too to like you know sort of get ideas into people's heads without them really i mean i'm sure every kind of i'm sure we could do a study on like fascist regimes use of music too i mean there's probably like so yeah music is powerful the way that any language is powerful and it is somewhat more universal than any other language, um, you know, within reason. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's incredible. I'm going to listen to that. Oh, it's bon- it is bonkers. But, but, but yeah, let, let's, let's veer back to you and what you wrote because we're like, I feel like we could chat for ages. No, this, like, is a, this is great. <laughs> but you were talking about safe spaces and... I think people forget how much of an anomaly people like you are. It's a shame, but it is rare for their, for, I mean, I would love to hear how it's been for you, but it really is rare to be, to be a woman who is a producer, an engineer, a composer, a ranger. It's not that we don't exist, but I imagine there aren't loads and loads and loads of you. So when you're in your, you talked about you wanted to create safe spaces for independent artists, particularly women. And when I was sort of researching you, one of the things I did notice is that the women that you have, uh, you know, either song written for or produced, there's a real sort of, um, what's the word? They're feisty. That's the only word I can think of. <laughs> I'm thinking of like Fiona Apple. I'm thinking of what's the woman from Garbage? What's her name again? Oh, Shirley Manson, the best. Yeah. Shirley <laughs> Manson. You know, these are like, I just think, you know, what's that um, Aretha Franklin and um, Annie Lennox song? Sisters are doing it for themselves, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? These aren't little women that are just going to lie down. These are like, you know, I'm thinking of, all, you know, the artists that you songwrite for. I'm just, I'm having a look here. They were, they were, I mean, yeah. So I think that the, I mean, the safe spaces that I can provide are for the probably way more indie level of female artists. Um, the reason I said, especially female is, um, you know, of course, for all the obvious reasons, but also just because studio environments are so predominantly male still that, um, we often forget when we're producing an artist that they're in a very vulnerable space when they're recording vocals. They walk into a studio and they see their male engineer and the male assistant and um, all the interns and the like, you know, and then they have to get in the booth and be super free. And, Mm. you know, and that was a learning lesson for me too, because we all learn from our experiences. So I learned how to be more conscientious of their vulnerability in that space. This isn't just some, you know, corporate job experience like they are coming in to bear their souls and this is not just women this is men singers too like any singer when they come in the studio but I just think because the number breakdown is so skewed still um I think unconsciously or consciously women feel this pressure to just be done instead of really questioning I didn't like that take or hmm I don't feel comfortable here can I turn the lights down can I I mean I've had singers lie down and sing sometimes you know just kind of like breaking out of rules so that they feel comfortable to get their best performance out. So um, I've had then, once I started doing that, I've had some female artists ask if I could ask some of the male interns to leave the room while they track their vocals. Now, I mean, this is a big learning process because I don't think all of these byproducts are intentional, but just the way that the structures are made up right now, it creates these 
environments that we're not always aware of how everybody's feeling within them. So I think it does make a difference for a woman artist to walk in and see a woman behind the board and a woman engineer. And, you know, I, I think it creates a different sense of, for now, confidence until we figure out what the other problems are within the studio communication structures, right? Mm. Um, but creating safe space for artists to, in general, I've heard a lot of stories, as I said before, about artists who feel like their creative work have been hijacked by producers. And maybe that's a power thing and maybe not, I don't know. But for me, it's very important to preserve the creative vision of that singer songwriter because um, otherwise I would just go make my own music all the time right the reason why I'm collaborating the reason why I'm a producer or a film sport you're servicing another narrative right mm. so I think that's a really important ego check for producers as well because you have to ask yourself why you're producing artists instead of just making your own music mm. if, the, if the love of it is out of that collaboration and uh, synthesis mm. then you can't even when it feels tedious and like you're in the 11th hour, you can't just finish it the way you want to finish it. And I had to learn that skill too, because it's very tempting. And when you feel like you're not getting paid enough and you're not, you know. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think making a safe space like that um, means making a space for artists and singers and songwriters, and myself included, to feel like we are allowed to say what we need to create the best art um, and I think you know I have experienced like the first time I know there's not a lot of us but the first time I just recalled the story recently that I felt like I had any kind of confidence was I was helping um, with arrangements for a fairly big record when I was in my early 20s and I thought that I was just going to come give the strings arrangements and leave um, and I got there and these two producers uh, both of whom are very successful right now um, <laughs> the strings players were in the room and I showed up with these arrangements and they were like, okay, you're here. We're going to leave. You run the session. And I couldn't believe it. And, I, you know, at first I was a little scared. Then I was like, oh, I can totally do this. Mm -hmm. But I will never forget that moment being this moment where someone trusted me enough to leave me in a pretty nice studio with like seven strings players. I'd never done anything like that before. Mm -hmm. And just be like, do it. You can do it. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't even make it a big deal. They just walked out to get lunch or something. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, so equal parts teaching yourself that you have that value, but also creating those environments where you feel like you are trusted and, you know, you can take charge of your area of this production. Um, so I think also creating a safe space means crediting properly, trying to pay everyone what they deserve. Now, obviously budgets are not within our control. And right now it sucks that musicians are being left to take care of each other. But I think always, even whatever my budget is, I will split it amongst my team as much as I can so they know that I'm trying. Yeah. I'll always credit people what I think that they deserve. I'm not precious about taking the only producer credit. If, yeah. if an engineer is doing a lot of work, I will give them a co-production credit. Um, I think, you know, fostering this idea of teamwork with music. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you love collaborating, if you're in the studio, it's never just one person putting in all the work. Mm -hmm. So kind of normalizing this idea of, every team value being team member being valued you know um that's all a part of making a safe space um i think a lot of women have become this way because we got so fed up of the ways we've had to come up but i do believe this is like an artist question and until the numbers are more equitable it just happens to be a more female question too yeah um i mean this is also obviously not taking into account um any sexual harassment conversations and all that that's separate but just just from the professional sense the number breakdowns are skewed towards men. Mm. The experience is sort of universal within this structure too, though. Mm. So, 
very many ways of fixing all of the many problems that exist, but yeah. But yeah. I'd be interested to know, I, I'm wondering also whether it's something now that, you know, they always talk about, you know, a seat at the table, whether we need to, I mean, Tyler Perry said this and whatever you think about Tyler Perry, I, I have a lot of respect for Tyler Perry. Sure. He just said, I stopped, I just went and made my own table. Yes. And I just think this thing of just like, when we know, because all the things you're talking about, I love, you know, and I, and I actually think safe spaces. And I like you say, it's also sometimes it's not even restricted to gender. I work, some of the men that I work with are very sensitive people. Yeah. And I think to if you're an indie artist, you are not quite sensitive. Your art, you're, it's, you're expressing who you are through your art. It's not just a random song. So even creating spaces where people can learn to say, like you said, I don't like that tape, can we do it again? Or having knowing how to explain what they need. Because sometimes you're like, this doesn't know, sound right, but I don't know how to even explain yeah, totally. that this doesn't sound right. So I think sometimes, I just think we're in a, like you said about artists having to look after themselves. I wonder whether we're in a time now where artists are just going to go and make their own table. I mean, I've thought about this for years now. Again, it comes down to the money question and getting funding and all this stuff. But for years, I thought before I started questioning labels in general, I thought of starting my own label that was mm. kind of also like an artist development space or studio mm. space where um, I wouldn't be the only producer or engineer, but I would, I don't know. I think it's really important to give people responsibility that they've never had the chance to have. Mm. Um, because for me, that's been pivotal for every step of my career, having someone give me, let me punch above my weight mm. until I realized, oh, I can totally, this isn't above my weight. It's well within my, you know what I mean? But th there needs to be more access to those kinds of opportunities too, um, because otherwise it's like a chicken or egg problem. Yeah. Credits versus, um, credits versus opportunity or gear versus output, right? Like, I mean, what comes first? We don't know. <laughs> so it's hard because they both influence each other. It's really tough. So I think, um, yeah, I've thought about, all of us have thought about at one point, starting our own institutions, starting our own tables, as you will say. I mean, within our own careers, so many of my friends and I have had to create our own jobs. I mean, how many times I can't tell you where I'm like, I don't know where my next gig is, I better make my own. So then it, that becomes about savvy too, knowing who can green light ideas, what institutions will house them, pitching the idea, and then like, running with it you know mm. what I mean? kind of holding your breath till it's over being like I think we can do this we can do this okay but um so yes I think a lot of people in their own ways are starting their own tables um until we have a higher reckoning that may be very hard to do in the way that we want to see now but but everyone's everyone's gonna do it if they have to do it um, mm -hmm. at some point everyone will have their breaking point of I'm tired of being treated this way I'm tired of treating other people this way mm -hmm. I'm tired of having all of these factors impede my creative process so how can I make my creative process yeah. better for me and everyone I'm working with and mm -hmm. it's just as simple as that but I, I think you're totally right and I have a lot of respect for the people like a lot of my idols have not listened to people who have done the whole jack of all trades, master of none thing. And yeah. I mean, so many of the people I really admire have just gone through every door that 
they could and created new roles and new new careers, right? Mm. New definitions of careers. I mean, I always bring up Quincy Jones. Oh like, my God, my right? hero of heroes of heroes. And for all the people, like before being a producer was even on my radar, um, you just look at this man and all the different things he learned, keeps learning, always encourages education, self-education, learning on the job. Um, but look at the number of roles he did with just the title of producer, right? And now we have people who just open an Ableton session and call themselves a producer. <laughs> you know, and like, I'm not saying anything is right or wrong. I'm not saying anything is false confidence, but like everyone should have some confidence, you know? I mean, this guy has, this guy, his interviews and his work, Quincy Jones is like my Bible sort of. Like I, when I feel really bad, I'll go watch his documentary again. <laughs> what would Quincy do? What it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Have you read his autobiography, Q? No, I watched. You must read it. I watched Quincy because his, the one Rashida yeah. directed, yeah, which I thought was amazing. But yes, I have to read it. I've like collected all of his various interviews just to reference sometimes. It's <laughs> amazing. Well, the yeah. book, Q when I watched the documentary I because I had read Q I knew all about or I say 99% of what she you know what she filmed but when that book came out I think I bought seven copies for my music people industry friends I was like you need to read this you need to read this you need to read this Mm. but you because it's even more in depth because it's written in his own words and like some of his kids have written chapters but so you're talking about your your people that you admire. Quincy Jones, I, I mean, like for me, he's the pinnacle as well. But are there any other people that you're talking about? Oh, gosh. To? So many. <laughs> Bjork. My gosh. Yes. Bjork. That talk about someone carving out their own space um, down to making their own instruments. Right. I mean, forever and all, when I feel kind of lost, I'm like, what would Bjork do? Oh, do? Bjork. Like, she would just be like, I'll do whatever I want. Okay. <laughs> this sound doesn't exist. I'm going to make it myself. Yeah, so this dress doesn't exist. I'm going to make it myself. This record. I mean, I, I just think people who don't, don't take no for an answer creatively, meaning if something seems impossible, the people that seem to just make it work somehow anyway, are people that I just really admire. And that these people don't fall in specific genres. They have learned almost everything that I can't even imagine knowing. Um, so many other people, um, I really, um, there's Steve Reich, you know, paid for himself uh, through most of his career field, Glass 2, Taxi Driver, till 40, um, uh, paid for his own musicians um, and own ensemble uh, while being a cab driver and working in insurance and oh, all these, like that whole kind of that. time period of classical composition, downtown New York, where, you know, they might never have won awards, like especially Philip Glass, I think is the one that said, I never won any awards, but I had some of the best collaborations of all time because I also, I just funded my own art somehow, you know, taking the veil off of the fact that you have to have other jobs and like there's beauty in being financially autonomous over your art. You might not get the recognition the way that others do, but you will certainly get to create your own experiences Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't seem possible to a lot of people. So I know any kind of story like that. I mean, God, this this list is super endless. <laughs> people that admire me, but uh, I admire, but people who have made their own careers possible have always been the people that pull me out of the doldrums. Mm. Like, look, they just did it for themselves, mm-hmm. as you said. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, sisters are doing for themselves. <laughs> 
But um, sisters and honorary sisters. Yes, uh-huh. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, I call Quin- Quincy. I feel like he'd be like I'd call him uncle if I met him. I'd have to call him uncle. I couldn't call him by his like first name. I'd be like Uncle Quincy or whatever. <laughs> love that yeah yeah but um you're making a record you said you're making a record tell me a little bit about your process making your record especially because you're someone who does so many things how is this different this one's very different um i should say it's also been a very long time since i've put out music under my own name uh producing other artists or working on films um i mean film scoring is different but it's been a very long time um since i have put anything out that's just mine. Um, and the way it started, it's over years of traveling. I do a lot of field recording. So I take a Zoom recorder around and um, when I, I used to travel a lot before COVID and um, I would meet people and street musicians and other musicians and ask permission and uh, get information and all this, but I was just would ask people if I could record things or record with them. Um, and it didn't have to be fancy at all. It was just, you know, sounds that inspired me. Um, and over the last five years, I think I've collected a lot from various countries and personal experiences, some protests now even. Um, and then from that experience, I've reached out to people since and collected a lot of little collaborative pieces. Um, and the, the record will be pretty orchestral and synth-based, but will include a lot of found recordings from all over the world, I guess, and things that I have just been sitting with for years that have inspired me that I kind of wanted to include in my music too. So it wasn't so much me sitting down and having an idea. It was really a real culmination of a lot of experiences and this sort of boiling point of creativity for me. So we'll see how it turns out. (laughs) Because you can also hear some of the ideas. Um, you, You can also hear how much I've changed over the time that I've been collecting these bits and pieces and all of the various influences. So um, it will be more of a community feeling than a, like a solo record. But I do think that's what inspired me now. Um, somehow just putting out my own ideas felt a little bit uh, not valuable to me. I have a lot of respect for people who are doing it now. But at this point in my life and the way I'm responding to the world and everything going on, um, it felt really meaningful for me to make it um, kind of a global effort instead of just my brain. So we'll see. Wow, that sounds really exciting. There's an artist, do you know a French artist called Chassol? No. Oh, his stuff is really interesting. He does a lot of, he tends to do sort of projects. Mm. So he'll do a lot of field recordings and like he was doing stuff in Martinique, he'll do these field recordings, but he'll add visual footage and then he'll play along to it. So it's like this whole experience and some really beautiful things. He was doing some stuff in India as well and... He kind of he kind of seems to do projects, but they will always involve audiovisual field recording and music all together in really interesting ways. So he had a whole thing about birds. That's it. And so he had all these different bird sounds and really beautiful. He's an interesting guy, Chassol. So okay, I'll check it out. Yeah. So I always like to ask my guests. I mean, you've you've been super. I'm learning from you just you talking. But what lessons have you learned that we can learn from? I have learned so many lessons. I will say the older I get um, and the longer I spend doing music, the more I realize I have to learn. And that is both professionally and personally, because I don't trust anybody who says it's not personal, it's just work. Um, If you're an artist and if you're a creative person, I do believe that you learn how to coexist uh, within this 
you know, your personal life and your professional life will have to coexist. It's really hard to compartmentalize that stuff. Um, but what I'm still learning and I'm talking about a lot now is what we talked about at the very beginning, which is trusting your own voice. Um, I think the longer you spend in this game, um, it can, the pull to be competitive or compare yourself to other people, it becomes very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but you always have to remember that the people you often look up to were never, you can't really compare them to others, or at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend said something really interesting the other day, um, literally the other day we were talking about this, and she said, take all the wisdom you need from other people's careers, learn from them, um, take notes, but it'll be bad if your career starts looking like anyone else's. And that really hit home, especially in the last couple of months where uh, I've been making a lot of personal shifts uh, career-wise and music-wise, which I'm very excited for. But there will always come that moment where you question, is it okay to make these changes? Is this going to be okay? Um, And so far, every time I've made a bold change, um, it has paid off tenfold because you really never know what's going to lead to what. So I'm saying this to myself and to everyone else, be open to changes, um, follow your gut always. Um, I mean, learn from others exactly, but at some point, just keep trusting your gut and your ear. Um, because at the end of the day, um, you've picked art and you've picked create art creation and um, that is meant to be a reflection of you and not just regurgitating what's been done already before. So I think these are all things we've uh, tapped on already, but um, this this is definitely what's going through my mind every day these days as we wind down this wild year. Um, I think there is a lot of big importance right now in um, kind of re-identifying your intention with making music or making art. Um, it doesn't mean it has to stay that same intention forever. These intentions change and evolve, as you said, as we change. But just remember to check in with that Um, because there will be a lot of joy in that. You'd be surprised how powerful it is to remember yourself and be like, oh, wow, I'm excited to go write again because that's what I wanted in the first place. Yeah. So tune out the other voices for a little bit once in a while, at least. And, and I think, you know, what you're saying also, I, I really believe that when people are free to be themselves, it really releases other people to be free too. And then new, exciting things happen. Like I, I will never forget when I experienced Joni Mitchell for the first time. I was like, oh, you don't have to <laughs> rhyme when you write a song. You can just say what you like. Totally. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And so when you're being yourself and you're trusting your gut and you're making what you want to make, it makes me think oh so can I and I just think we need more of that in this world because I just there's such a I don't know I think people we just need like I say we're in this kind of weird global existential crisis and I think art could be the thing that signposts people to to be free again or you know totally and back to the personal bit of this because yes like you said not rhyming is important um I mean I, I always think about with Carly Simon she famously used to stutter Um, and she used music to get over stuttering. Um, I think about all the personal affectations I have that I've always felt insecure about 
which have often probably led to some of the ways I make art and music. Mm. Whereas I've been told my whole life, I talk too fast or switch subjects too much or, um, you know, and as I get older, I realize that that's a very real, you know, mental trait that a lot of musicians have and stuff like that. But I used to be so self-conscious of those kinds of things, but then I would always notice it was reflected in my music. So when you kind of embrace all of these personal things about yourself that influence your art, you will also start to really like appreciate the different and unique parts of your own art too. So it's a, both a personal and creative endeavor to trust your gut. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> My last question, what music are you listening to? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> so many things. I'm trying to think of like what I was listening to at the beginning of lockdown um, to now. And, um, beginning of lockdown it was a lot of stevie wonder nice. <laughs> i needed something <laughs> exactly i needed i was just like i need it i need it now um i have been listening to a lot of film scores nick bertel's personally if beale street could talk beautiful Ooh, score yeah um things i have been listening to a lot of bach lately which is something that's gone full circle because i'm famously a terrible meditator from a family of meditators and for me I guess my classical early training has made Bach the closest thing to that experience for me. Um, I have been listening a lot to uh, blinking, blink. Oh, Thundercat record. Nice, the new one. Yes, um, which I started listening to in London and have been deep diving into since because the number of collaborations on that and the genre twists and turns for me, I think it's like a pretty impeccably produced and um, curated album even i won't just say just the music like the way it flows from start to finish there aren't there haven't been so many full records where i don't skip tracks but it's just like an entire experience for me obviously the fiona apple fetch the bowl cult cutters for me was like another big mm -hmm. uh pandemic twist in my brain um yeah i've been listening to so many things i've been revisiting old playlists from <laughs> other years which include people like natalie press and uh things that I haven't listened to in a long time because I feel like lately I listen to a lot of more hip hop and um, synth jazz type stuff, but I used to listen to a lot more folky stuff. So I've been just kind of deep diving through my personal favorites, like all the songs that I know that I've had on repeat once in my life, mm -hmm. just to remember why. But yeah, I'd say those are some big ones. Those are some they're good ones. They're good ones. <laughs> but um, <laughs> thank you for taking the time today um yeah well i look forward to what you're creating the world needs to hear it i'm you too i can't wait um I know. lots of i mean i will say the best part of pandemic has been connecting with so many amazing creatives around the world i mean the fact that we're even doing this from opposite ends yeah. uh it's kind of an awesome uh like foreshadowing of hopefully yes. things to come Exactly. Yeah, thank you for having me so much. <laughs> Thanks so much. You take <laughs> Talk care. Talk to you soon. Take Bye. Care.
Thank you so much to Shruti Kumar. Do be sure to find out more about her work. Go to her website, follow her on Instagram, listen to her radio show, Let's Shake On It, and the work she does with Sound Travels. All details are in the podcast blurb. And as you know, Holding Up The Ladder is available on numerous platforms. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. You can also donate to the podcast. Just click the link below. And you can also follow us on Twitter at H-U-T-L underscore and Instagram at Holding Up The Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. Next week is our season finale. I decided to do it a little differently this time, but you'll just have to tune in to find out. Until next time.